At the end of the day, the gospel is all we have and all we need. At the end of the day, the gospel is all we have and all we need. We read about the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, For I delivered to you as, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to many witnesses. This is the good news. Remember, that's what the word gospel means. It is good news. It's the announcement of good news. What happens when the good news is modified? What happens when the good news is adjusted, when it's tweaked? What happens when the good news is changed? What happens when it's edited? Does it make any difference? Does it matter? Is it really that important? Can we trust the gospel, particularly when it's been changed? And this historic gospel that Paul talks about, we looked at it in depth last Sunday from the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, this gospel... Can we depend upon it in a sophisticated, technologically advanced age? Can we trust it even though it is viewed with skepticism or criticism or sometimes even outright dismissal? We say this is good news. So why would anyone push back? Why would anyone take the good news that God has given and tweak it or edit it or change it? That's a valid question. And it will be on our minds this morning as we continue through the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. Would you open your Bibles there, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we are working our way through this New Testament letter, 2,000 years old, and yet as up to date as the headlines, a letter that was written to a troubled church in the Greek city of Corinth. Paul had planted this church, the Apostle Paul, and in these early days in which there was no New Testament because the New Testament literally was being written, when problems were taking place in the church, the apostles would write letters, and those letters carried what is called apostolic authority. They were considered the apostles' teaching. And you say, well, what happened to that authority? What happened to that teaching? Well, now we have it in the Bible, the New Testament, as well as the scriptures of Israel, the Old Testament. And so we're working our way looking at this troubled church and perhaps what we're going to find this morning, I think, is a root of many of their problems. You'll appreciate that I will go through a repetition of all of the troubles that we've dealt with in 1 Corinthians already. Sexual problems, problems of division, problems of how to understand marriage and marriage commitment, problems about how to observe the Lord's Supper, problems about spiritual gifts and what we would call charismatic gifts, all of these problems. But I think as Paul winds down his letter, we're in chapter 15, you, know, he, you recognize he didn't write the letter in chapters and verses, but we're in chapter 15, which is close to the end of the letter, he stops, it's almost as though he hits pause, and he deals with an unusual amount, he devotes an unusual amount of real estate to the issue of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And from what we can tell, we can see it, we saw it last week, back in verses 1 and 2, they believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At least that's what they said. They were Jesus' followers. They had heard the gospel and believed it. And so why would he take so much time to address this issue of something that evidently they already believed? 
Because in their believing it, they were tweaking it. They were modifying it. They were adjusting it. And in doing so, though likely they didn't realize it, they were doing at least two things. They were manifesting and showing their heart and the things that they cherished the most. And they were also functionally destroying the gospel, especially for the future generations. And so that's what we find in our text this morning. Uh, The easiest way that I could think of to word this is that what we're going to see is the Corinthians were chasing after a worldly gospel. Now, when I use the word worldly, I always have to stop because some of us who were raised in church, anything our church didn't like, it was classified under the term worldly. We were raised that way. But it's nevertheless, it's a legitimate term because it, it has to do with this world system, which the New Testament says is always at enmity with God. And there's a tendency for God's people all through history to adapt themselves to the world system around them and in doing so, compromise what it means to follow Jesus. In fact, in one sentence, that's a description of what we find in the Old Testament for God's people Israel. They consistently, regularly, habitually wanted to be like the world around them. And so this idea of worldliness is not some term that's reserved just for fundamentalist preachers. It's a concept about the reality that we can give ourselves over to the spirit of the age. We can give ourselves over to this world system. And in doing so, the nearly inevitable result is that we will compromise or tweak what we call the gospel And that's what was happening in our text, I'll show you this morning, in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12, and before we're through, we'll be down through verse 20, because what we have here is a worldly gospel, and it's summarized in verse 12, so look at it with me. And I remind you, all through the message this morning, this is God's word for us today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, there Paul writes, he says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, and he was... If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now just stop and think about that for a moment. Think about the little bit or the wealth of knowledge you might have about the gospel of Jesus. What we saw last Sunday is it is unquestionably linked and grounded in the historical resurrection of Jesus where his body was miraculously raised from the dead. And this is part and parcel of the gospel. And Paul says, you believe this, it's been proclaimed. And in verses 1 and 2, they had believed it. So now, why were they saying that there's no future resurrection from the dead? They had accepted and believed in Christ's resurrection, but they had become skeptical about their own. And why? Well, it was because their theology had become compromised. It was tainted with cultural values, and therefore they had reinterpreted and truncated the gospel into a worldly gospel. Now, why would they have done this? I didn't mention this last week, but it's possible that there was some residual influence from the Sadducees. Because if you remember the stories from the Gospels, the Sadducees, they were a particular sect of Judaism during the time of Jesus. And unlike the Pharisees, who were considered the fundamentalists, the Sadducees were considered the sophisticated crowd. They were the educated crowd. And remember, the key aspect of the Sadducees' belief that Jesus dealt with during his earthly ministry, what was it? They denied the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so it's possible that there was some influence 
from the Sadducees that had carried over into the church at Corinth. But it's more likely, as we said last week, that this was the influence of Greek philosophy. Because Greek philosophy at this time especially was essentially defined by what we would call dualism. And what dualism means is this, is that that which is spiritual is eternal, and that which is physical and of matter is temporal and therefore meaningless. In fact, sometimes it crossed over to where it wasn't just meaningless, matter was evil in the minds of some in the philosophy of dualism. And so you see how this works. The message of Christianity that Paul and the apostles came preaching is that Jesus physically lived, physically died, and physically came out of the tomb, and there's a promise of our physical resurrection as well. But in the Greek philosophy of the day in Corinth, that was terribly unsophisticated. Because why would anyone want a bodily resurrection? Your spirit probably lives on. Maybe it lives on in the ether. Maybe it's, there's some kind of reincarnation. Maybe it's the idea that goes back to the ultimate consciousness in the universe. Whatever your weird philosophy was, it didn't have any interest in a physical resurrection. And that, in fact, was considered odd. It was considered, as one scholar says, it was considered disgusting and revolting that you would look for and desire some kind of physical resurrection. All that mattered was the soul. By the way, this is also perhaps part of the reason that they so easily accepted sexual sin. Because here's the way that works. If your philosophy is that the body is meaningless or perhaps even evil, but ultimately it doesn't really matter what happens with your body, it is a quick step from that to it doesn't matter what you do with your body. If your body is insignificant at best, evil at worst, then your body isn't going to last. This earthly world doesn't matter. And so why get hung up about sexual sins which are only temporal and only have to do with the body, so the philosophers would have said. And so when you look back, (coughs) pardon me, when you look back at part of what was going on in the book of 1 Corinthians, and you look at the problems in the church, what you find there is an openness to sexual sin, which was likely influenced by this same dualistic philosophy. But here at the end of the day, that philosophy, which was influencing the church, said that without any immediate payoff, what good is a future resurrection? The religion they were looking for, and think about yourself for just a moment, The religion that they were looking for, perhaps the religion that some of us are looking for, is an immediate payoff. And the deferred benefit of physical resurrection has very little interest to us. Because we're looking for what benefits us now. We're we're looking for the immediate payoff. We're looking for something that will fulfill us now. And so therefore there was this shallow, hollowed out, sometimes sentimental, sometimes oversensitive correction to the gospel. And so in the Corinth culture, the idea of preaching a bodily resurrection, that was offensive. And so here's the way the Corinth Christians were thinking about it. Let's just shave off that hard edge of the gospel. Let's just smooth that off. Because people don't want to hear about a physical resurrection. They don't buy that. And so let's just, let's just present a gospel that's spiritual, that doesn't really have anything to do with future physical existence, Let's present it in such a way that it will be appealing. And indeed, (coughs) excuse me, that's what was happening. See, there's a problem with this. 
There's a problem with this. Earlier in the letter, this is what Paul had said. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And that's what these Corinthian believers were skeptical about. They were concerned about connecting with the culture around them, perhaps. Or they were concerned about appearing sophisticated. They wanted to be accepted. They didn't recognize what James later said in James chapter 4, do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? No, they had forgotten that. And they believed that they could follow some kind of gospel of Jesus, but a worldly gospel that the world wouldn't be offended by because it had nothing to do with the physical resurrection. And that's what was happening in the church. So there were these vague, undefined theological ideas without any bold truth claims, and they were hungry for acceptance. Let me tell you a quick story. One of the saddest books I've ever read is a book called A Place at the Table. It's about a seminary professor at a seminary that nearly all of you have heard of. And he was a genius. He was well-known. His books are still being used today, and he died in the 60s sometime. But during his career, he was so eager to be accepted in academia. You need to know this was coming out of the 30s and 40s and 50s of the last century, and there were all of these battles between fundamentalists and modernists. And especially in academia, at that time, I don't think it's changed drastically today, at that time, the idea that you accepted the Bible as the Word of God, that you believed in miracles, that put you on the outside. You had no place at the table when it came to academia. This professor believed that he could convince secular academia to accept him, and he made that his life work. It's one of the saddest stories I've ever read. Because he wrote his magnum opus, and he presented it to the academic community, and because it was faithful to the Word of God, their response was they laughed at it, and it ruined his life. Because he never could find a place at the table. Because sooner or later, folks, in this world system, you might be respected, and you might be accepted, but sooner or later, when you cling to the gospel that's not a worldly gospel, you cling to the eternal gospel, sooner or later, you'll lose your place at the table. Sooner or later, you won't be sophisticated. Sooner or later, you'll be marginalized. Jesus said it this way, beware when all people speak well of you. And the Corinthians were wanting to be spoken well of by all people. And so they were stifling the message of the physical resurrection. I should just stop and say a blanket pardon me because I'm going to keep coughing, I can tell. So please pardon me, nod at me, if you understand. Thank you. <coughs> because it's not going to end. And I'm not contagious. I'm sure I'm not contagious. This is just leftover. As opposed to the worldly gospel, what we find is that there is an eternal gospel. And this text emphasizes it. Let me show it to you. Look at verse 13. Three times Paul says exactly the same thing. Three times he repeats the same principle. The first one is here in verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You get what he's saying? You believe that Christ has been raised, 
But if you're denying a physical resurrection, you really deny the resurrection of Jesus. He says the same thing in verse 15, the last part of the verse. We testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So there, if you believe that there's no physical resurrection, then you can't say that you believe in Jesus' physical resurrection. And it's repeated in verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. It's a package deal. One is meaningless without the other. There was a Scottish theologian named James Denny. He said it this way. If we cannot talk about the bodily resurrection, we should not talk about the resurrection at all. It's not some spiritual resurrection. It's not some ongoing life where you live on in people's memories or you float around as a spirit eternally or once again, there's some kind of odd reincarnation. There's nothing like that. The gospel promises that our bodies will be raised miraculously to an eternal life that has some level of physical existence, but nevertheless does not have the weaknesses that we experience now. This is the bodily resurrection. And the issue that Paul's raising is this. It's easy for us to miss this. That's essentially what the Old Testament taught. That's essentially what they believed in the Old Testament. That's what the God of Israel had encouraged the people of Israel to believe in. And so when you suggest that that's not the case, you basically are denying the Old Testament. And you are denying God's creation agenda. Watch this very carefully. The point about the physical resurrection of Jesus is that God is not through with this physical world. Even though it's now in rebellion, even though it now has disaster, even though it now has heartache, God is not through. And God will redeem it. God will rescue it. God will fix it. And that's not only true of our physical bodies, but it's also true of creation. And think about this. As glorious as creation is today with all of its fallenness, God's not through yet. He's going to remove everything painful. He's going to remove everything that's a heartache. And he will rescue and redeem his creation. And the gospel and the physical resurrection of Jesus first and then believers is just a demonstration of that. It's part of that process. This is part of the gospel. The world now is held in rebellion. It is The authority of God has been usurped, but one day God will redeem his creation. And that's what we are sure of. Now, the Apostle Paul goes on, beginning in verse 14, and he gives at least five sobering implications about this worldly gospel. Five sobering implications if you adopt this worldly, truncated, adjusted, tweaked gospel. And one commentator talking about this text said, no language could make the meaning any plainer. It's astonishing to hear a biblical commentator say that. But he said, the point of this is there's no sermon outline that can make this any clearer. So I'm not going to give you an outline. I'm just going to give it to you. Beginning in verse 14, the first implication is this. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. That's what Paul says. Our preaching is in vain. And note the pronoun, our preaching. He's personally engaged in this. He was the one that had brought the gospel to Corinth. And he says, if you come to the conclusion that the dead are not raised, you functionally are saying that Jesus is not raised, and everything we preach to you is empty and meaningless and vain. He cared about these Corinthians. He didn't want them to adopt some kind of worldly truncated gospel. And he said, if you believe this, everything you have, everything that you heard us preach, 
It's all in vain. It's all empty. Now, I want to be very careful, but I want you to hear me. Sometimes we can tweak an aspect of the gospel, not the resurrection, but sometimes we can make adjustments thinking that it's not going to harm what we really believe. That's what you have in chapter 15. It begins with the fact that these Corinthians were still believers. They were still the church. The problem is this. What are their children going to believe? And what are their grandchildren going to believe? Because we are responsible to pass along a legacy. And when we tweak or change or adjust the gospel, maybe for acceptance, when we don't want to say this or, or, or we're willing to hedge here in order to be accepted, sometimes perhaps we can claim that we're still holding to the gospel, but the problem is the next generation will not have the kind of clear, solid foundation that they need. And then you recognize what happens. Then the next generation is that much further away. And so Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, first of all, our preaching is in vain. What we believe and how we practice gospel truth matters far more than just our own daily individual lives. The second implication in verse 14 also, not only is our preaching in vain, but your faith is in vain. The resurrection of Christ is the great confirmation of the gospel and its power. Without the resurrection of Jesus, and ultimately without our resurrection, death wins. And what we're going to see in a couple of weeks, right here in this chapter, is that death is our greatest enemy. And without the physical resurrection, death wins. Let me go one step further. It's not just that death wins, Satan wins. Because Satan has robbed in a sense, he has robbed this world from the hands of its creator. And in a temporal sense, he now rules. And if God is just going to walk away and say, well, forget it. Forget my creation. Forget the physical existence of my children. We're just going to have some kind of eternal existence that's spiritual in nature. If God just walks away from it, who wins? Satan wins. Your faith is in vain. One English Scholar said it this way, for the early Christians, the gospel without the resurrection was not merely a gospel without its final chapter, it was not the gospel at all. The Corinthians had forgotten that. Third implication, in verse 15a, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true the dead are not raised. What Paul is saying is this, if the future bodily resurrection of believers and linked to that, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, if we let it go, then basically our message is this, here's reality, there's a decomposing corpse of a Galilean carpenter turned itinerant rabbi, that's Christianity. That somewhere in the Middle East right now, there's the rotted body of a foolish carpenter from Nazareth who thought he was Messiah. And where would Christianity even be if that were the case? It would not be in existence today. And yet, some in Corinth were buying into the idea that the resurrection doesn't really matter. Beyond that, we shouldn't miss the gravity of these words. Look at them again in verse 15. Misrepresenting God. That should terrify us. Years ago, I was at a pastor's conference many years ago. And I remember a guy, had, a guy there was a Q&A time, and the guy stood up and 
he started to talk about his fear of, in preaching of misrepresenting the gospel or the Bible. And he became distraught because he was terrified about standing before God's people and saying something that was contrary to what the Bible teaches. And the initial response to that is, that guy's over the top. That guy's got some issues. But if you really think about what he was saying, he was spot on. Especially for those of us who preach and teach. The book of James says this, there's a heavier burden. There's a greater judgment upon us. But for any of us, if you claim a gospel that's not God's gospel, you're represent, misrepresenting God. You're speaking for God in a way that God would never recognize. Misrepresenting God is a terrifying concept. And here's what happens. What was happening with the Corinthians and what sometimes can happen with us is that what we call the gospel, the good news, is no longer good news. That's the problem. And that's what we find in the next implication in verse 17. Because look at what it says there. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And that is the brutal, personal, sobering terror of a worldly compromised gospel. If Jesus is still in the tomb, if there is no promise of future resurrection, we are still guilty before God. And make no mistake, your greatest need in life, your greatest need in life is not for comfort, it's not for healing, it's not for financial blessing, it's not for emotional peace. Your greatest need in life is to know that your sins are forgiven. And without the gospel, with a worldly compromised gospel, you are still in your sins. Paul references this when he writes to the Romans in Romans 4. He says, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up on account of our trespasses, he was also raised on account of our justification. The, the logic is simple. If Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins, but then he stays in the grave, what hope is there for us? The idea that our sins were somehow wiped away, but we have no future hope. We have no future promise. We have no future resurrection. We have no future union with him. And make no mistake, this is your greatest need. Your greatest need is to know that your guilt is covered. Your greatest need is to know that you have come to a place where God, who in his holy wrath is perfectly just to damn you, and yet he is willing to forgive you through Jesus Christ, his son. That is your greatest need. And if you play around with the gospel, we have no message that delivers people from the guilt of their sins. You are still in your sins, Paul says. Finally, look at verse 18. The last implication is that those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The people we love, the people, whether it's our parents, whether it's our children, it's the people that we care about who were in Christ, they are no more if there's no future resurrection. There is no promise in Scripture of some kind of, of spiritual eternal existence. Now, let me try to clarify this because I think this is a place where we get confused. The present state of our loved ones who believed in Jesus and who have died, the present state is not embodied. They are not in bodies. 
their spirits are present with the Lord. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and so at, at home with the Lord. So they are in the presence of God, but they are in the presence of God, essentially we can say it this way, awaiting the resurrection of their bodies. And somewhere at the end of time, depending on where your eschatological chart falls, somewhere at the end of the time, God is going to raise the bodies miraculously of all those who were his, all those who knew forgiveness. You say, well, that's not really possible. I mean, I mean, think about all the bodies, the millions of Christians, and all their bodies have turned to dust, and how is God going to raise those bodies? Because he's God. If your God can't do that, you need to rethink your definition of God. And so he raises, he promises to raise those bodies, and sometime in the future, our spirits, if I die tomorrow, my spirit will be present with the Lord, and one day in the future, my spirit will be reunited with a body that will no longer have cholesterol issues, <laughs> and will no longer be prone to sin, that it, it will no longer grow old, and for those dear beloved ones who have disabilities, for those children who are born with deformities, all of that will be done away with. And at the very least, what God is saying is he's in Satan's face saying, see, you don't win. Now there's far more to it than that. But at the very least, that's what it is. And by the way, that's the reason that this life matters. God cares about our bodies. We should take care of them to the best of our ability. We should, we should strive to, to, to maintain life as much as possible. Life from conception to natural death. All of those things are under God's sovereignty. And our care for them demonstrates the fact that we have respect for God's creative order. And one day he's going to fix all of this mess. That's the promise. And so... Our loved ones are presently in the presence of God in their spirits, but they await the resurrection of their bodies as well as we await ours, our glorified bodies. And those bodies are difficult for us to understand because they have some degree of physical quality, characteristics, but they are eternal. They have some degree, Jesus, remember there are stories of Jesus in his resurrected body where he ate and yet he was not limited, evidently, by time and distance. Now, we don't know if that's because he was Jesus or because that's a miraculous aspect of the resurrected body. We don't know, but we do know this. This is the promise. And the promise is there'll be a resurrection, and one day it will take place. This is one of the reasons that the famous passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 about the rapture and the resurrection at the end of that passage where Paul basically says, don't lose heart because either if you've died or if you're alive, when Jesus comes, your bodies are going to be resurrected. There's eschatology explained, by the way. Your bodies are going to be resurrected. And then at the end of that, you know what Paul says? Encourage one another with these words. So if you go see our sister Pam today in the hospital, you encourage her with that promise that as much pain as she is in right now, that the promise of the gospel is that one day God's going to fix all of that. No more car wrecks. No more cancers. No more disabilities. No more Down syndrome. No more, no, no more deformities. 
This is the great promise. Encourage one another with these words. And everything that Paul is saying in this chapter, very simply, is that without the bodily resurrection, the Old Testament and Jesus and the New Testament, they are all vain and empty and meaningless. A modified worldly gospel is no gospel at all. And I should stop and just acknowledge what's going on right now in our culture. It's going on in what is called evangelicalism with authors and pastors that some of us have read their books and benefited from. It's also going on in the Roman Catholic system with the teachings or the implications that are coming out of the current pope. And it is basically this. If an idea of biblical truth is so offensive to the culture, we should decide to change it. We should shave off the rough edges. And that is a worldly gospel. And although it's not primarily about the resurrection, it's ultimately no different. It's a desire for a place at the table. Give us a place at the table. You don't like the physical resurrection? We can do away with that. Give us a place at the table. You don't like what the Bible says about God creating men and women and, 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 and the purity of sexual love only in marriage between a man and woman? You don't like that? Well, we'll shave the rough edges off of that. Truncating the gospel never benefits anyone. It doesn't benefit those who need the gospel. It compromises our own souls, and it especially is damning for our children and our grandchildren down the road. Verse 19, look at it with me. Verse 19 is the summary of these tragic implications of a worldly gospel. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The King James said we are of all people most miserable. And the irony of this, catch what Paul's saying. If this is the only place we have hope, if there's no physical resurrection in the future, then we deserve to be pitied. The irony is the last thing the Corinthian believers wanted was to be pitied by the world. They wanted to be respected. They wanted to be accepted. They wanted a place at the table. And Paul says, no, the truth of the matter is, if this is the only place you have your hope, we deserve to be pitied. Let, let me culminate this by having you engage with me in a, in a thought experiment for just a moment. Just, just bear with me. What is this kind of worldly, accommodated, truncated gospel? What does it mean to millions of believers through history who follow Jesus in simple faith? And I'm talking about the millions of believers through history who followed, who simply believed in Jesus believed in his life, his death, his resurrection, and believed that as they put their faith in Jesus, they would one day be resurrected as well. What is this kind of worldly sophisticated gospel? What does it say to them after they live their lives in miserable poverty and the daily toil of what ancient cultures had to go through? What does it say to them as they experienced unimaginable infant mortality, as the expectation of having children was that your baby would die? What, what does it say to them who, who suffered from ancient, mysterious, deadly diseases with no hope of cure? 
What does it say to those millions of Christians who underwent unspeakable injustices, who, who engaged and experienced warfare and brutality, especially the brutality toward women that has been part of history? What does it say to them that this is all there is? What does a truncated gospel say to people who never experienced freedom? We are so enamored with freedom, with freedom of expression, with the freedom of our lives, and yet you recognize that the vast majority of Christians throughout history had no freedom. And yet the Corinthian gospel is, it's good enough here. This is good enough. This is life. Don't worry about a resurrection in the future. Grab for all the gusto you can get now. How does that work? Or bear with me for a moment. Not just the Christians who lived and died. Think about the hundreds of thousands of Christians throughout history who have suffered for their faith. Think about the hundreds and thousands of Christians who were rejected by their families, who were isolated in their own tribes or clans or villages. Think about the hundreds of thousands of Christians who were tortured and who were martyred because they were Jesus followers and go to those people and tell them, you know, that's all there is. That's what life represents. That's the best that God will do for you. The definition of New Testament faithfulness includes the idea that you're going to suffer. And the motivation for it is your eternal reward, which is a physical resurrection. And if this is all we have, the fact that we don't grasp this likely means we're too comfortable in this world. And let's face it, living in Santa Barbara, pretty comfortable. I, I, I'm not making light of struggles or hardships that we have, but compared to believers throughout history, we've got it. This, they would look at us and say, you're living in heaven. People, people who live in Houston think we're living in heaven in the summertime. And if this is all there is, though, especially not for us in our comfort, but I'm talking about the millions of believers who have already died, who didn't have anything near the kind of comfort and joy and, and, and pleasure that we experience, we're most to be pitied. In fact, we're a sad, pitiful joke. Romans 8 says we are being killed all day long. We are like sheep being led to the slaughter. And where's your health, wealth, prosperity gospel in there? The health and the wealth and the prosperity is what heaven is about. It's what the resurrection is about. And so what you have in this text is this contrast between a worldly gospel and the eternal gospel. And it's summarized once more in verse 20. And with this I close. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. The firstfruits, the agricultural product, the first sample that demonstrates the nature and quality of all the crops that will come. This is Jesus' resurrection. And it's firstfruits because His resurrection was different from any other resurrection. The resurrections we have under the Old Testament, the resurrections in Jesus' earthly ministry, all of those resurrections, you know what happened to those people? They died again. 
I've told you my theory. Lazarus was probably the most miserable person on the face of the earth because he'd been in the presence of God and here he was back on earth. And he died again. Jesus was raised as the first fruits, a new kind of resurrection, never to die, to live eternally. And he is our brother and he has the kind of body we will have. This is part and parcel of the gospel. And his resurrection is a personal assurance. His empty tomb means that someday our tomb will be empty too. And that's the good news of the gospel. And that brings joy now, and it brings hope for the future. You see, the only way you can really experience joy now, you can experience happiness and you can experience pleasure, but the only way you'll truly know joy is to know that your sins are forgiven and your eternity is guaranteed. And when we live that way, we experience a fullness of joy in time because we have hope for eternity. And that's your takeaway today. The empty tomb assures hope for eternity and joy for today. And if you're missing joy, go back to the gospel. Have your mind renewed again with the glorious promises of God's good news. And if you're uncertain about eternity, go back to the gospel and remind yourself of what the gospel does. It provides forgiveness and a promise that we are, it, it's, we, we think of it in such shallow terms. And some of us, the ways we, in which we were raised lend to this. It's not that we get to go to heaven when we die. That, that's not the point. We, we've said it that way. That's not the point. In Christ, we are joined with Christ, and we are therefore one with Him eternally. Where He is, we will be, and we will be forgiven, and we will be righteous, no longer to sin. That's the promise of the gospel, and there is hope in that eternally, and because of that, there's joy today for our circumstances. Let's pray together. Father, Speak to hearts this morning. Help us know your presence. Help us know your promises. And Lord, though for many of us, we might not question the promise of future resurrection. There's a sense in which because of skepticism today, we all, in one way or another, are tempted to mitigate and truncate the gospel. The hard parts of the Word of God, the places that give offense to this world, we need to remember, not, not that we seek after enmity, but we need to remember your Word, that a too close friendship with this world, an intimate friendship with this world, represents enmity with you. Father, teach us what this means in our daily lives. Encourage us with the promise of the gospel, which is forgiveness of sins and life eternally with you. And build within us this hope for eternity, which will produce joy for living today. In the glorious name of Jesus, we pray. In him, our only hope. In his name we pray. Amen.